welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. Delighted to say I am here with Phil Simon. He is a prodigious author of a list of many, many books, which I'm not going to read out here. Um, he is probably the world's leading expert on collaboration and workplace technology. And his latest book, The Nine, which I have read, uh, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace, is something we're going to take a dive into today. So, Phil, a very warm welcome to the show. Hey, Richard. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so, for the, for our audience who's not familiar with you or your work, I know before we came on, you were a former college professor and consultant before you um, got into yeah, becoming a, a, a very accomplished writer by now. Um, yeah. Could you give people a sort of potted history of, of your background before we dive into to the latest book, The Nine? Yes. When I got out of grad school a million years ago, I started working in corporate HR, realized that was a terrible decision. So I moved over to sort of HR and payroll systems, spent about a decade helping companies implement enterprise resource planning systems, basically HR, payroll, finance, accounting, that type of thing. And then after about a decade of banging my head against the wall, I just started writing what became my first book, Why New Systems Fail. I kind of liked writing, didn't think that I was terrible at it. So basically have banged out about a book a year over the last 14. And in that time, I've also done a lot of public speaking. I took a job as a college professor for four years, but have continued to sort of sit at the nexus, Richard, of business technology, data, and people. And when COVID hit, I realized that we weren't reverting to pre-pandemic workplaces anytime soon. So the last four books, including the nine, have been about the future work. It's um, my accidental series. Who says that only fiction writers can write proper series? Right. Yeah. And there was one stat uh, that, that struck me in the book, um, just to dive into that topic, especially that uh, you, you list people returning to physical activities and you've got concerts and restaurants and air travel and so on. And then only, only 49%, right, uh, back back in the office. So this is something that's I guess we all know it anecdotally, but we've got the stats now that this is something that's stuck, this, this new way of working. And that has so many implications. Uh, I don't know about um, across the pond, but certainly in the US and cities like New York, Boston, San Francisco, it's having an outsized impact on local businesses. It could be a deli or a restaurant or a coffee shop, but if fewer people are coming into the office, then those businesses may not survive. And that also greatly affects how much real estate companies really need and whether they can have a fractional office or even fractional employees. So as I researched this book, I was really amazed at how all these forces kind of collided with each other. And it's kind of like the, um, what is it? The butterfly theory or the butterfly effect. If one is slightly off in Australia, then it affects you know, the weather in New York or something. So that these are all intertwined and hopefully I did a decent job of explaining them in enough detail that would intrigue people, but also not overwhelming them because I think it's a 280 page book. You could easily write thousands of pages on all these technologies and trends and not cover all of it. Yeah. And there were definitely, there, there were some chuckle moments in the book, which I appreciated. Your, your, your humor came, came through, which I, which I love. Um, if we, and, and we should definitely, we should dive into some, some of these trends in, in, the, in the podcast, but w- if you were to try and kind of sum, summarize in somehow, what are the, we've obviously just talked about one of them, you know, this, this remote working being a major one. But if you were to, to summarize what, what's going on as you see it, but before we take a dive into the independent 
threads how yeah at a high level richard the elevator pitch for the book is this the world of work the workplace isn't reverting to pre-pandemic times too many things are in motion and have been for a long time so the question becomes for the business leader or the reader of the book what are you going to do about it and in chapter 10 i lay out six different options including ignore it or try to pretend like COVID never happened like elon musk or you can steer into the skid. There are a bunch of different options, but I just feel like too much has happened and too much is happening. These trends aren't going to reverse themselves, right? If, if anything, take a look at generative AI tools like ChatGPT. I mean, if anything, now there's basically a comparable tool for logo generation or many for videos and images and even voice, which is pretty scary if you think about deep fakes. So I thought about all of these trends and how they were playing off each other, but yeah, the, the idea that we can pretend that COVID didn't happen, I, I think, is absurd. And if a company tries to impose that mandate that everyone returned to the office Monday, 9 through, Monday 9 through 5, Monday through Friday, I just think it's ignoring reality. In the short term, people might have to bite their tongue and commute, but I guarantee they'll be looking. And a lot of the data that I uncovered researching the book supports that. But remote work or dispersion are really just a couple of things. There's there's so much more to unpack in this book, some of which I'm sure we'll talk about today. Yeah. So 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 we're not going back to normal anytime soon. It's yeah. We've got this. Yeah, we got this. These two. So something's happening physically, and then something's happening digitally, right? So we've got this, and they they as you say they interrelate. So we're we've got this power to to work where we like, uh, but also we digital tools are emerging, which are giving us whole new capabilities. Um, and I, I guess it's where, where do we get into this conversation? You know, where's the starting thread on, on what's changing here? And, you know, where, where should I suppose an exec, executive thinking about these manifold shifts start to try and make sense of it? I don't know. Chapter one sounds like a good starting point. <laughs> But yeah, it, it it was interesting. I had a tough time, Richard, deciding on the order of the forces because I wanted them to flow, but they, they're related, but they don't overlap. So I did what I thought was a logical job of laying things out, in particular, when I think about immersive technologies like ChatGPT and MidJourney and Stability AI and some of the other ones. But then the following chapter, I think it's six, I discussed blockchain and how proving the provenance of an image or software code um, is important to prove who did what and when and to avoid some of the scenarios like the guy on LinkedIn I write about who thought that he got a job and it really was from, I think it was Coinbase and he didn't. Um, it was basically a scam and he caught on to it before he sent a whole bunch of Bitcoin to the scammers. But yeah, I mean, we've been struggling with spam for a long time. I think Bill Gates said by 2004, we will have eliminated spam. Well, I don't know about you, but I still get spam. And if you think about generative AI tools like ChatGPT, they're incredibly powerful. They can save us a lot of time. But one of my favorite quotes is from Melvin Kranzberg, technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. So I can think about how if someone gets access to that information, they could get you to do things that you didn't want to do. And the implications of that uh, for the world of work, I think, are enormous. But many people, in my view, Richard, view uh, blockchain as basically a subsection of cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin. And in point of fact, there's a lot more you can do with blockchain technology, particularly as it relates to proving the provenance of certain work. 
So yeah, this is this is an ambitious book that covers a lot that you can write books and many people have about individual technologies. But I thought about the audience for this book, the executive, the, the C-suite uh, inhabitant, the small business owner, the VP, who doesn't have time to read all those and just wants mm. basically the, the high level overview and what's important. And yes, there are many resources if you're curious about uh, just take um, some of the options around um, employee dispersion or workplace empowerment, work, or worker empowerment. But I wanted to provide the kind of book that I quite frankly want to read if I ran a 500 or 1,000 person company. Yeah, yeah. And it definitely does a great job of, of, of pulling these threads together. Well, let's start with chapter one then. Let's start with employee empowerment. Uh, well, the one, the one stat that really stuck out, stuck out to me was between 2019 and 2021, there's been a rise. And I didn't realize it was this bad in 2019, but, but of 59% to 76% in an, in, of, of employees with at least one mental health condition, uh, which, which really struck me. I mean, I've, I've heard it from clients. I do a lot of coaching with executives in my business. and I do, I do hear this, but that's... That's extraordinary, isn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah, I want to meet the 24% of people who don't report having some sort of stress at work. I mean, I just did, I knew it was a high number, but, and I thought, well, one in four report being basically okay. And it is interesting how we've destigmatized that. People never used to talk about it. I know professional athletes like Kevin Love of the, formerly of the Cleveland Cavaliers and the National Basketball Association three or four years ago was one of the first I can remember to go public saying I've got mental health issues. And what was it a couple of months ago, the prime minister of New Zealand stepped down, I think it was, because she said, I just, I don't have any more in the tank. Yeah. So there's been, I think, a destigmatization of it and employees feel empowered to say, I'm not comfortable doing this. Um, And I think it's one of the reasons for the great resignation. But yeah, employees are much less docile than they used to be. And the statistics bear this out. I know that in the United States, the percentage of Americans who hold a favorable view of employee of employee unions is at the highest point, I want to say, in 50 years, give or take. So companies like Starbucks and Trader Joe's, Amazon, um, are all dealing with union certification votes. And that's just another sign that employees are not just going to sit back and take a paycheck. Uh, but there's a lot more in that chapter to unpack as well. Yeah. Um, and... And and this this idea of worker worker drive is waning, and so there's this picture being painted of people, you know, with high stress, with mental health, with worker drive training. And um, what do you see as being the underlying drivers of this? What's your sense of what's going on here? Well, this is a particularly American phenomenon, but I know that the problem exists in other countries. Even China is seeing this rebellion against what they call nine nine six working at least 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., at least six days a week. Um, Fewer people are doing that. Um, So uh, it's prevalent as well in the United States. Here, our our laws are very employer-friendly. You can say that's good or that's bad. I'm not going to argue. I'm just going to say it is, uh, certainly in comparison to Canada, France, Germany, some of the other other industrialized countries. So when the pandemic hit and many of us could work remotely, rather than having our personal lives revolve around work, we inverted it and our work lives evolved around our personal lives. So we were able to take our kids to soccer practice or exercise more or pick up hobbies or go back to hobbies we may have dropped. And if the pandemic had been a couple of weeks, 
or a couple of months, maybe it's a snow day, but it's going now on three years of this new reality. So the question becomes, what do you do with that information? And the idea that employees are just going to pretend that COVID never happened, I think is absurd. So how can you take advantage of that and look at it as this opportunity to maybe treat our employees better, to find people from all sorts of places, not just commutable distances of having more purposeful business travel and saving on things like gas and doing things that are better for the environment. So again, these aren't going to return to pre-pandemic states anytime soon. And when you factor in the other trends in the book, I, I, I think it'll require adjustment and some experimentation. I can't tell you the exact number of days that people need to be in the office. Clearly, if you're doing physical security, you kind of need to be at the front door. Um, but um, as I cover in one of the subsequent chapters, companies like Cisco and Marriott have spent a lot of money redesigning their workplaces to make them more collaborative. The goal there, Richard, is to get people to come in only if it makes sense. So if you're just going to be checking email or sending messages in Slack or coding, that's individual work. You need not go in. Cisco in Manhattan, this is my favorite yarn from that chapter of the book, pre-pandemic, allocated 70% of its space in that office to individual work and 30% for collaborative. Now they flipped it. And their realization is that people should come in only if it makes sense to meet colleagues that do training or have a pep rally or whatever, and not to do individual work. So employee empowerment manifests itself in so many different ways. It's definitely one of the top employee-friendly trends in the book, but there are some that aren't so employee-friendly, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Yeah, well, and that's what I'm, so what I'm curious about is in some ways, yes, this pandemic has given employees more uh, power, you know, we, we can have more balanced lives. In many cases, I'm somebody if, if experienced that. Um, but yeah, it appears that our, our mental health is, is declining. And so is there, is there anything that you've come across that suggested um, is, it, is having the effect of improving mental health and that is kicking against this trend? We've seen a lot of companies flat out ban meetings for certain days, or I read about companies that every other Friday now mandate a day off as a mental health day. There's some of that. Um, but I'd argue that you know, not holding meetings on a particular day of the week might be a bit of a band-aid. Why are we having all those meetings to yeah. begin with? Um, there have been some right. fascinating stats I've seen from my previous books. Asana did a really good, good study a couple of years ago on the anatomy of work. And I think it was something like 40% of people surveyed of, of their time was spent on, they call it working on work. So it isn't the things that they like to do, like writing or coding or strategizing or whatever. It was trying to find documents, trying to schedule meetings, trying to find basic documents because is it in Teams? Is it in email? Is it in Google Drive? All these other things. So you know, previous books in the series have addressed those types of things. But yeah, it's easy to feel stressed out when I think it was some um, same survey, something like, or it might have been a different survey, but something like 75% of employees report trouble finding key information and documents when they need it. And my question is always, who are these other 25%? Because it's so common for people to have their information strewn all over the place. And it might not seem like that big of a deal, but if you can reduce the number of tools that people are using and use those tools more intelligently then they're going to be less stressed. Uh, my belief is, and I haven't seen any study on this, studies on this, Richard, but it, for, so I'm a writer or if I'm preparing for a talk, I enjoy the prep. I, right? I don't enjoy mm -hmm. 17 emails back and forth 
hey, do you have this document or can you find a time to schedule? So there are plenty of, I would argue, relatively easy things that organizations can do that make people feel less stressed, but I'm not a doctor. I don't have the all the answers. I have no problem saying I don't know, but th this is not a mental health book, but it's one of the causes of employee empowerment and then organizations that I think realize that it's an issue and then take some of the steps that I recommend and some of the other chapters might see lower attrition. Right. Well, maybe this is a good good place to segue into that then. So spe specifically on, on, on that thread then of employee empowerment and, and improving that, what, what are the steps people can take? Again, cover a lot in the book, but just practically, I think about organizations that I used to work for one that didn't really give employees raises every year. And you think about an environment of anywhere from five to 8% inflation, although in the US it's dropped a little bit, you know, giving people a raise more frequently than once every couple of years, I think isn't just good business. I think it's essential. Go back to dispersed workplaces, go back to the prevalence of remote and hybrid work. It used to be that we would have to move many, in many instances, maybe not if you lived in London or Paris or Boston or San Francisco, but many times organizations um, would have a hard time attracting folks unless they were in those big cities. Well, these days you can switch jobs without having to do that and uprooting your families and finding new schools for your kids. So I would argue that understanding that work doesn't need to take place in an office and giving people their time back is a good starting point. There was a great Bloomberg article I read a couple months ago that attempted to correlate the drop in productivity with the return to work. And the premise was that people were so irritated of having to commute an hour and a half each way that their performance on the job reflected it. And then you heard stories about people who would commute only to be on Zoom calls all day and basically saying, are you freaking kidding me, right? I needed to spend this amount in gas or parking or tolls or time when I was just going to be on Zoom. So this is not a tactical book. In fact, um, I think you saw the galley, not the physical book, but right on the back of the physical book reads, this is not a tactical book. And by no means do I provide this sort of checklist for how you can yeah. be successful in this new world of work. Um, so to this, to that extent, it's a strategy book. But if you read the book, you can kind of put one and one together and realize that a source of, say, employee stress might be this mandate that they go to work or might be the um, threat of losing their jobs to automation or generative AI technologies that I talk about towards the middle of the book. So recognizing that those things are taking place, um, I think, is a good starting point. But it, it's it's tough right now, whether you're a white collar worker. In fact, middle managers and HR folks, according to my research, suffered from some of the highest turnover rates, which I thought was fascinating because middle managers right, are stuck in between. Same with HR departments. You've got your CEOs like Howard Schultz saying, or Jamie Dimon, we need to get everyone back to the office. And then you've got employees who are saying no, and your middle managers are caught in between. So no wonder it's such a stressful job. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot to discuss in this book. And I, I can't say that there's a five-point plan for eliminating stress in the workplace. I'd be very skeptical if I saw such a list anyway. No, but what's emerging for me as we're talking is um, what perhaps is incumbent on on leaders right now, given the stats we have about mental health, just to take one example, and we know the impacts already on, on it, on productivity and so on, is to, to start asking the question, well, what are the prevalent trends to my company and my industry? What what impacts are they having on employees right, right now? 
if if the general stat is 76% of employees have one or more health conditions, like what is it in my business? And what can I start to do using this technology, using these needs and opportunities to push that in a different direction? I mean, that that's what's emerging for me as being the opportunity for, for leaders here. Yeah, I, I tried to write with the nine, Richard, an industry agnostic book. Now, if mm. I were to write the nine for healthcare or financial services or manufacturing, I'd probably emphasize some different things in some different ways. But hopefully there's enough there that leaders, irrespective of where they work, can read and go, wow, I, I didn't know about this blockchain thing. Maybe I should investigate it. And as it turns out, if you work in manufacturing or you work in banking, and there's this case right now that's uh, currently, I think, uh, in litigation or um, their criminal charges with Chase purchasing, I think it was Frank, a student loan company, and Chase paid $175 million. And I think there were 4 million users, allegedly more than 99% of which are fake. Um, now, if they wow. had done better due diligence and had looked at maybe blockchain technology to verify the provenance of those accounts, they might've been able to see that those weren't really kosher. And again, that whole thing's a mess. But yeah, I, I, I did not want to attempt to cover every industry with every force it, the book would have been 700 pages and um, no one would have read it. No, but I think what this book gives you is, is it's the starting point. It's like, okay, these are the prevalent trends, like, and then, and then start that work. As you say, I mean, of course there is no, and I'm totally skeptical of these books that come out, you know, the, the five point plan to improve employee happiness in your organization. Yeah. There is no, it's such a complex topic. And we've had people on the show talk about complexity theory. And if you understand complexity, you understand how, um, you know, just ridiculous some of some of these uh, supposed selves are, you know, for these complex issues. So yeah, those, um, those kinds of books don't interest me. I don't like uh, reading them. Um, and I, I certainly don't like writing them. I think there are something like 350 endnotes in this book. So if you're curious about a particular claim or want to know more, I mean, whether it's in the bibliography or some of the endnotes or some of the footnotes, um, I, I think that I did a pretty good job of striking that balance between explaining what's going on um, in a reasonable and engaging and hopefully occasionally humorous way, uh, but, but not overwhelming people because you, you can get into the weeds on any one of these different things. And um, so hopefully it's the type of book that will, um, yeah, I, just get with my background, having worked in HR for a hot minute, I'm still fascinated. I don't have a traditional technology background. I joked when I was a college professor in the Department of Information Systems, my former employer, that I had the worst pedigree of anyone in the department because I never studied relational databases or internet technology or whatever. I just kind of figured a lot of this stuff out. So um, that has always stuck with me as a writer. I approach things from a different perspective than a pure technologist um, and hopefully that's one of the strengths of the book. I don't take it for granted that, oh, it's only about implementing the right tech, because as you know, change management is very difficult. And someone can conceptually agree with, say, pick remote work. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's good in theory, but it doesn't work for us. Well, there's there are all sorts of studies. I'm sure you've seen some of them proving that people have been as, if not more productive, working from home. But this gets down to trust, right? Do we trust people? And I think that's a huge part of the employee empowerment issue. Right? When you look at the number of companies that installed in surveillance software. Yeah. Right? Um, it's software that's very much a trust issue. Yeah. And I, how much, I just laugh how many because... He strokes you, you, uh, you log in, a, in an hour. I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Yes, I understand it. I don't agree with it. But, but fundamentally, it relates to trust. You've got basically old white guys, for the most part, like me, 
who are making decisions and well, I had to commute to the office every day for two hours. Why are you so special? Um, so I understand it. I don't agree it agree with it. And don't get me wrong, I am not one of these um, extremists for remote work. I, I think it's absurd for management to say you can only do work if you come into the office. And I think it's equally absurd for employees to say, I'm never coming in because there are real benefits to getting to know folks, even if it's only once a quarter or a couple times a year. Um, but some of these other technologies that I mentioned, like AR and VR in chapter, I think it was four, if you look at what Accenture and Walmart are doing around employee training. I mean, we've been hearing about AR and VR for decades, uh, but I do think that a lot of these technologies have matured to the point at which they actually make sense to explore but rather than make that point in the abstract, I'm a big believer in stories and case studies. So hopefully if people are skeptical of this, and I picked Walmart and Accenture on purpose because those are two very different companies, you're primarily talking about blue collar workers, in many cases who make minimum wage or a little bit more and very highly compensated employees at one of the world's most prestigious consulting firms. So if you've got those two goalposts, if you like, um, hopefully it proves to readers that this isn't a niche technology that only gamers are using. Yeah, I thought that was it. And I thought in chapter seven, you talk about combating Zoom fatigue with this sort of these VR setups that, as you say, Accenture exploring. And I, I was anything to combat Zoom fatigue, right? Yeah. Could you just expand a little bit on on how uh yeah that that story about how Accenture is using VR? Yeah, it's fascinating. They um so about, oh gosh, a year ago or so, maybe a little bit longer, Facebook changed its name to Meta Platforms Inc., which is a very clumsy name, but they spent, I think, $10 billion on Metaverse. And it hasn't been successful by all accounts. Um, they've wasted a great deal of money. Their stock had dropped. It's recovered a bit, but they've had, I think, two massive rounds of layoffs. But we are seeing now with Accenture, if they want to do consulting around building a metaverse, it can't just be abstract. And to the extent that with such a new technology, the pandemic was still happening, they found that it was best to, in the parlance of Silicon Valley, eat their own dog food. So they created their own metaverse thinking, all right, if we've done it, we can show other companies how to do it and charge a lot of money for it. So it's not like 10 years ago, according to the Internet Archive, they had a metaverse page on their website. They didn't. They only put it up about a year and change ago, depending on when this recording goes live. So long story short, they used the technology to facilitate employee training. So no matter where employees were, they could receive training. Is it as good as in person? Maybe, maybe not, but it's certainly better than a lot of the standard Zoom training that you see. It's a lot more interactive. And I do think that they've done a lot towards um, reducing the fatigue that people have typically experienced putting those headsets on. But again, once we've seen successes, whether it's Accenture or Walmart or some of the others, then I think it's only a matter of time before other companies go, all right, it's kind of crossed the chasm. Um, this isn't as weird. We don't want to be the first one to do it. We know that there are companies that have done it and we can see a benefit from it because again, getting back to the first and second forces, employee empowerment and dispersion, we're not going to be able to mandate that people return to the office Monday through Friday, nine to five. So to make training better than it is, maybe not as good as it would be in person, but finding a happy medium. I do think that those immersive technologies are worth exploring and doesn't matter what I think, companies are already doing it. Yeah. And what I found interesting, particularly about that is, according to, I think, according to the research, we like to feel like we're co-located and, and when some are digital and some aren't, right? And 
you, you have this problem of not everybody feeling like they're in the same place. But if you're all in this VR environment, you, you, that makes a difference. Oh, 100%. There's a reason that Microsoft Teams has launched features to make it appear like you're in the same virtual environment. You might say that it's kind of cheesy to all be sitting in a classroom. But if we've all got different backgrounds with different internet connections, it, it will build up over time. Um, so yeah, it's important for us to feel this sense of community. And again, I'm not saying that we never meet in person. On the contrary, I'm a big believer in in-person meetings. But I mean, if you look at the data, it appears as if we're going to land on two to three days in the office. Um, WTF Research has been putting out studies for the last two years or so, and it's remained fairly constant. Workers want to come in two days a week. Companies have been offering three. So to me, as I write in the book, we're in this zone of agreement. It's not like we've got companies saying zero and employees saying five. If you, if you split the baby there, you're not going to be happy. But if it's between two and three, is it really that big of a deal? And I would argue that it isn't. But what can we do when we are remote and we're not in the office to work more effectively? Um, and that's why I do think that the immersive technologies I describe in that chapter have finally matured enough to warrant consideration from executives making these decisions. Yeah. And one thing I also caught, thought, thought was cool was the, um, the new conference room design from Cisco that you put in where it's, it's a, like a triangle shape, right? Because that's yeah, the yeah. thing on hybrid, right? So I, I, since we're recording the video, I could show you. But yes, so it, it sounds silly, but it's just basic geometry. And if it's a square table and I'm at the end and you're at the front, people are like this, and that's not really sustainable. But if it's more like a polygon or a triangle, then you could sit naturally as you would if we were in person. So yeah, I, I don't know how much that particular table costs, but there are a lot of things that people don't necessarily think about or they say, fine, we'll let someone dial in over Zoom. But you're absolutely right. And, and the research backs this up. Um, in some of my previous books, I've written about proximity bias, this notion that even though we're all in the meeting, there's latency. You're a screen. You're picking up. You're not picking up on nonverbal cues. And Future Forum did some great research a couple of years ago about how proximity bias was leaders' number one concern around remote and hybrid work. And people get promoted at lower rates, even if you control per performance, by virtue of not being there. Oh, is that true? Because I saw some other re research from a, from a lady called Sarah Perry, uh, who uh, you know, researcher, and she found she found that in the studies that she'd looked at, there was no difference in promotion but that's interesting mm. so you've got a counter finding there. yeah i mean we could i mean there are definitely different studies on it but the, the bottom line is I, I don't know which one is true or not and i didn't spend a lot of time looking at the statistical mm. analysis but you know it, say what you will about everyone being remote richard or everyone being in person there is no proximity bias but when some people are there sometimes and other people aren't there there's this sort of out of sight, out of mind notion. And particularly with new employees, if you joined an organization during the pandemic and you haven't built up that social capital, who are you again? What do you do? Versus, oh yeah, Richard, we worked together for five years, now we're remote. I, you know, we you and I have that bond. We've we've broken yeah. bread, we've, we've grabbed a drink, whatever, we've um, you know, shoot shot the breeze in the office. But yeah, I, I'm hardly the first person to say that younger, newer employees would do well to get to the office just to build those relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And this, the same lady, Sarah Perry, bear in mind, this was a lot of this research was all done pre-pandemic. And of course, things have changed massively since, but also found that for, for, collab for, for transactional work and a lot of operational work, you could actually see benefits in productivity from being remote. But for collaborative, creative work, you're better off in person. 
Yeah, I would imagine things like employee training. I mean, we've all sat through some mandatory training on autopilot with it in the yeah. background. And, we're trying to figure uh, out how to game it, right? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and I've, I've done it as well when I thought the training was kind of boring or I had more pressing matters to do or already knew the material. But yeah, it is tougher to do in person. And and you know, I, I think when it comes to a lot of these new technologies, it is incumbent upon organizations to make the investment in training. Again, if it's easier for employees to leave, and many of them are, then how can an organization distinguish itself? Look, I mean, if you hate your boss, will a 5% raise change things? Maybe not. And if you get that dream offer to leave and double your salary, then you're not going to compete with that. But I, I do think that there are things that organizations can do, um, and hopefully the book describes some of them, to signal to employees that they matter and they're not just replaceable. Uh, then, of course, if the organization's using automation and generative AI technologies, they may feel a different thing. But that's why I thought this notion of tectonic forces was so interesting. Some were definitely pro-employer and some were pro-employee. Um, but uh, people can judge for themselves which which ones are stronger, but they're definitely related. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, let's talk about generative AI. Um, I saw that there's one chart in the book, uh, which, I, which I like, and it, it, it shows how long it takes to get to a million users, right? And it, and it stacks down. And um, it took five days. Right. to reach a million users have brothers it took you know months and years incredible five days yeah. and i want to say now someone told me it was a hundred million and that might be for the free version not for the paid version with gpt4 but yeah that absolutely exploded and now there are all sorts of other similar tools whether it's barred uh, from google or startups that are working on this with smaller uh, language learning models um, it's it's fascinating to me because people are talking about whether or not copywriters will exist in the future. And I saw on LinkedIn a couple of days ago, someone said, basically, I just lost my job because they said, we can get GPT to do your job and we don't have to pay GPT $50,000 a year plus benefits. So that actually was the tipping point for me, Richard, in November after I read about it and started playing with it. I'd been conceptualizing my new book. And when I saw the impact that chat GPT was already having, as you said, reaching a million users in five days, which is far faster than Facebook, Netflix, the iPhone, and it continued to grow. I said, all right, this is not only an important force in and of itself, but it underscores the need for other forces or technologies like blockchain or this notion of fractional employment or fractional real estate that I cover in chapter nine you know, maybe AI can do part of my job. Maybe automation can do part of my job. So if I only want to work three or four days a week, maybe that's something we can explore. Right. But employers are unlikely to let you have it that way, right? They're, <laughs> they're going to just try and fire you. Uh, well, I suppose that's possible, but, you know, it, uh, who, who knows? I mean, there's certainly there's this burgeoning movement of fractional leadership, whether it's, I'm not talking about a Google or a Meta or an Amazon, right? Mm. Those are massive multi-billion dollar companies, they need full-time chief executives, right? Amazon's not going to get away with a, a chief general counsel who shows up one day every other week. But for companies with 100, 200, 300 people, maybe they're growing. They'd like a chief marketing officer or chief um, operating officer, but they quite frankly can't afford one yet. So will they explore two or three day a week arrangement in which you lock in someone um, with a company email address, not a temp, not a consultant, someone who's got some skin in the game, and then let him or her make some of those key decisions, knowing that 
you know, if it's really urgent on a Thursday or Friday, that person may not be about around because that person's not a full-time employee. But certainly automation and generative technologies um, can do a lot towards alleviating a lot of the administrative burden that we mentioned earlier with that Asana study and people who are spending 40%, 50% of their time on manual tasks. I mean, it's we could go down the rabbit hole with chat GPT, but when I think about some of the applications of it that I've seen with some of the APIs and some of the plugins, you know, imagine being able to go on a trip, come back, not check Slack, Microsoft Teams, your email, and it provides a quick summary of what you've missed. I mean, that could save dozens of hours every year, if not more. I mean, how many people are afraid to not check their email yeah. because when they get back, they're going to have 600 messages and it's like they're playing whack-a-mole. So those are those are interesting technologies and they can make us more productive. But researching the book, I was really um, fascinated by this productivity paradox. The, the idea that when a new technology comes along, we assume it'll make us more productive, but sometimes that hasn't been the case. Well, yeah. I mean, product, labor productivity generally hasn't really moved at all, has it, for, for decades? In, uh, no, in a lot of it's Western... fascinating to me when, when you think about okay. not having to hire a, an executive assistant to plan your trip because you can do that with Expedia. Um, well, what if you've got generative AI now, right? You can just say into the computer, hey, book me a trip from here to London, leaving on this date, and it knows your calendar, so it knows when you like to fly. And so it could allow you, it would free you from the administrative burden of booking the trip to do different things. Um, but again, that doesn't always happen. And even with the rise of the internet, it's it hasn't been across the board improving our productivity. So will it happen here? I, I, I don't know, but it's certainly worth discussing. And I tried in the book to, as with all of them, uh, pay attention to history. So I know that we live in this, um, you know, what have you done for me lately? Society, 24-7 news cycle. Oh, I can't believe it's the first time this has happened. Uh, hopefully with the technologies, even the chapter on automation, I'm saying, look, automation's been here for decades, but some of the advances, particularly around robotic process automation, um, are new, but they're built on previous technologies. So uh, again, hopefully it's well-researched. And some of these things, you know, that take employee empowerment, right? That's been around as long as capitalism itself. We can go back to Karl Marx, yeah. but hopefully it's a modern spin on things. And yeah, I, I don't know how that plays out. Do, do you use ChatGPT much? I do, and it's extraordinary. And I'm already using it for copywriting tasks, right? I'm I'm already I'm already finding that it's given me some productivity increases. Mm. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, immediately my mind leaps to: could this have the societal impact that some people fear it will? Right, the, the Elon Musk or the Yuval Harari think he's you know we're we're going to end up with huge swathes of the population who are. We, we, we can't find employment for, and we'll need to usher in universal basic income, and et cetera, et cetera. Or is this just a hype curve, and actually everybody will just find new jobs empowered by these new tools? Yeah, I, those are both valid concerns, um, and I don't know how all this plays out. Yes, if we think about uh, one of my favorite expressions, Joseph Schumpeter's creative destruction, um, if you think about just take the, the World Wide Web, so we no longer needed travel agents. But we needed web designers and social media specialists and search engine optimization specialists. Well, what happens when we've got a robot McDonald's, which I write about yeah. in chapter four in, in Fort Worth, Texas? You know, what happens when 
Uh, and I believe it's a chapter. Oh gosh, I forget which chapter in the book off the top of my head, but you've got this AI lawyer linked up with immersive tech. So you have a listening device on your head that can respond to a judge and you don't need a lawyer. Um, that sounds crazy, but it's actually happened a few times and it would be silly to think that it isn't going to happen again. So I, I don't know how all this plays out, but to me, if I put myself in the position of one of the readers of this book, again, a head of a business, a president, a chief executive officer, I'd want to know about these things rather than not know. And then make some of the decisions based on what we think are our best guesses. But um, yeah, I, I you could absolutely make those cases. It, it, one of the common refrains I quote to Eric Bjornsson, don't quote me on that name. I always mispronounce it. It's Swedish. It's a little bit long out of Stanford. It says that AI isn't going to kill lawyers. It's going, there are going to be two types of lawyers in the future. Lawyers that use AI and lawyers who are no longer lawyers. Right. Yeah. So do you tend to come down on the more optimistic side that we'll find ways to integrate this and generate new, new jobs? I, so calling me a bit of a skeptic for my purposes. Yes, it, I, I do think it will be interesting when you and I make this point in my 2020 book, Reimagining Collaboration, when it comes to summarizing information and AI learning about how I work and making recommendations. I'm not a huge fan of using chat GPT for writing purposes because it's going to generate a fairly generic text. And I like to think that I write with a certain style and panache. Plus, you don't know if it's true. It's not necessarily sourced. It's static. So it might have been true when they built the model. So there are a lot of reasons to be skeptical for it. But look, if I just wanted to crank out a 500-word blog post on whatever, could I do that in minutes versus a couple of hours? Sure. Um, I would argue that you, if a writer is going to need to raise his or her game to stand out, because there already are plenty of um, AI-generated texts on Amazon. Uh, Reed Hoffman, the um, former CEO and founder mm. of LinkedIn before Microsoft bought it, wrote a book with chat GPT-4 as its co-author. Did you see this? Yeah, yeah, I saw the headline. Yeah, I didn't read the book. One of my friends here in Phoenix, uh, Arizona, was saying that in the future, he thinks that that'll actually be a pretty common thing on books. Um, what, and I was even thinking of for, for my next book, whenever that comes out, to actually include some sort of disclaimer at the beginning, explaining if at all how I used a tool. And, and for the nine, I used it a couple times. I used it once to have chat GPT define itself right. and inserted that in there. And then there was one other instance, I believe, of, of chat GPT getting something wrong. So I mean, it's silly not to pay attention to it, but I think the true power of those tools will be when they're integrated in other applications. So rather than going to openai.com forward slash GPT or whatever the URL is, and Microsoft's already doing this with Office, right? So create me a nine-page presentation on my daughter's graduation. Boom, 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 and it creates that. Or have you heard of Notion? No. Uh, Notion's one of these no-code, low-code tools that I write about in my previous book. It's Basically, um, it's a little hard to explain because it's like a Swiss army knife, but it could be a database. It could be a research tool. Um, it can be um, a, a to-do list, project management, really a lot of different things in one. But I think it was in early December, they added support for OpenAI's chat GPT right in there. So if I wanted, let's say you put in, we were researching a book together, you put in five or six articles and I didn't have time to read them all. Could I say within Notion, summarize these five articles, and it would give me a very quick overview, save me some time. 
So again, those types of things are interesting, but you know, it, it, get back to your question, will it completely replace people? I, I'm skeptical, here's why. So we can yell at our computer all we want, it doesn't respond. When we hire consultants, or you said you, you do a lot of coaching, part of that, or a consultant, uh, myself, part of that in here is a decent amount of accountability, right? How come you didn't do this? How could you miss this? Um, if yeah. we know chat GPT and tools like it aren't accurate, even if it's 5% of the time, you know, are you willing to make a big bet on your business on something that may not be true? Or even just legally, when you look at these language models, who knows if they were able to legal get permission to source text or images or videos or voices, um, we're already seeing this right now with them. Um, do you ever watch John Oliver's show last week tonight? No, no, no. All right. He did a one episode maybe six, eight weeks ago on generative AI. And he, he looked at some of the image generation tools and how they had, without permission, scraped images of stock photo sites from whether it was Getty Images or iStock Photo. And there was one images his team found that had a watermark blurred. Okay. So if you hire, a designer to do a book cover for you or logo or whatever, that person created something for you and legally you shouldn't be in a lot of trouble. But if you use an AI tool and it comes out that you actually stole something or use something without proper attribution, you know, could you be on the hook for that? And I don't know about England, but here in America, we love our lawsuits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a, that. And that's also been my experience with ChatGPT. I mean, so, as you say, it's it's not one hundred percent accurate. But that's a point I hadn't considered. Right, you you do not have accountability there. Yeah, and, that, and we want that. We have I, in, a, in a human relationship. In a, we we have we have trust and accountability. Right. So I'd say that I am uh, less than optimistic because the profit imperative. I mean, I think it was Churchill said democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. I would also add that capitalism is probably the worst system, except for all the others. We've seen over the last 25 years that the tech industry is incapable of regulating itself, You know, whether it's Facebook slash Meta or Google. Um, Twitter is a shitstorm right now. Um, you know, why would it be any different with AI? So I, I think, you know, it, it's going to be something we're going to have to deal with one way or the other. If you pretend that it doesn't exist, could you be costing yourself significant opportunities? Absolutely. If you turn everything over to it, are there massive downsides? Absolutely. So again, hopefully that particular chapter and the book in general provides a balanced view of all these things. I mean, they're happening, whether you like it or not. That doesn't mean that you should push all your chips into the middle of the table blindly if you've got a 2-7 offsuit. Right. Yeah. Um You've got chapter eight, unhealthy analytics. I mean, we see it everywhere. Data, data-driven decision making. Let's bring data into our me meetings. Data, not opinions. Uh, what, what's yeah? What's your take on where we're at with you know the data science, data analytics, and, and where it's going? Well, I started off, Richard, by saying that I am pro data. I wrote one of the first books in 2013 on big data, too big to ignore. I wrote a book on data viz, a book on analytics. I used to teach analytics at Arizona State University here in the United States. So you'll get no argument from me on the ability to make better decisions using data. The problem is when we only rely on data and employees know this. So you're going to compensate me based on how often I'll go to the office. Okay, I'll show up at the office. I won't do anything, but I'll show up at the office, right? 
So when you think about, and we saw this with Howard Schultz, and I think it was uh, Iger at Disney basically saying, we have the, key, the, the card swipe data. We know who's in the office. Okay, so people who go into the office could be less productive than people who are working at home. I mean, at a bare minimum, I'd argue if you commute an hour each day, right, and you want to get home to see your kid, you leave at a 5, 5.15 train, so you can get home at 6.30 versus if you're working at home, you could probably work till 6.15. Uh, so there's that. But yeah, in the book, I, I start that chapter off with a de- description of baseball. And I'm really not a big baseball fan, but the sport has changed so much since Billy Bean wrote Moneyball about the Oakland A's. And I see strong parallels to what's going on in work. Certainly as a former college professor, I know that some professors who weren't on a tenure track wanted to get their appointments renewed. And one of the factors, not the only one, but one of them was student evaluations. Well, I know how to get good student evaluations. I'll be really easy on them. I'll give them opportunities to make up tests and just generally be kind of a pushover. But does that really benefit the students? I like the fact that some of my students said, your class was hard, good, because life is hard. And you need to develop those muscles and that muscle memory early on in your career versus getting an A. So it is very easy for employees to game the system. In the book, I write about Campbell's Law and Goodhart's Law. In a nutshell, it means if I know how you're evaluating me, I will modify my behaviors such that I get a good grade or evaluation, but I'm not really accomplishing the goal that I want. We've we've seen this with American school systems. Teachers said, you need to get the students' test scores up. Okay, I'll teach to the test. So I'm basically telling you what the answers are going to be, but that doesn't mean that I'm teaching you how to critically think or solve problems or deal with ambiguity. And those are a lot more important than memorizing that uh, the square root of 225 is 15. <laughs> I'm <invested> in that. <laughs> math I can do. Pe- people can be challenging, but math, I get it from my dad. Math is, uh, math's not that hard. And so what's, I mean, I, and I get this isn't like the five-step plan, but, you know, just from a strategic prescription, strategic perspective, what, uh, prescriptions do you have about, like, let's say, the healthy use of data? Yeah, I mean, it's a good thing to bring data into the discussion, but we're, we're seeing a lot of companies uh, basically do away with performance reviews because they are, that no one's ever, li- I think something like 12% of employees ever found them useful. Yeah. Uh, so there's that. Um, so again, I, I'm not anti-data, but the idea that data solves all our problems, and, and again, we're going to see more of this, this, this notion of gamification. Um, we we're seeing it a lot, particularly getting back to the chapter on immersive technologies. If what I'm doing is natively digital, by definition, we're collecting ones and zeros, right? So we could quantify how long someone was on Slack or Microsoft Teams, but just because you're on it doesn't mean that you're doing anything it's not hard to hack a lot of these technologies. A couple of years ago, I read a story about how some guy created an AI in Zoom that would have his face move during meetings because he had a separate job. Oh, I'm not making this up. And people just assumed that he was quiet, but he was present, right? He logged into the call and his face was moving and all that. So it's remarkable to me if, if we're judging people exclusively on numbers that they can easily manipulate it's ridiculous to me to think that those are the best ways of measuring folks. Again, I'm not in HR anymore, but I mean, the book kind of concludes with um, what I think are the six options and pretending that these trends aren't taking place, I just think is is irresponsible. Um, but hopefully people can read the stories and go, yeah, with regard to analytics, 
Um, I totally see what you're talking about here. And maybe just pinning everything on a single number, whether it's number of times in the office or amount of time spent in the office or whatever. I mean, back in my consulting career, I remember doing some work for an education startup. They sold student loans, but they never defined what a sale was. So some of the reps said, all right, since I don't know what it is, I'm just going to log every contact with my prospect, whether it's an email or a phone call or a response or whatever. And I remember they brought me in and say, all right, we want our sales numbers. And I say, I'd love to know what the sales numbers are, but you don't ever told me what a sale, a sale was formerly. So again, there's a natural tendency for folks to uh, manipulate their metrics for the purposes of financial gain. And I don't have all the answers, but this, the book contains a number of stories of those types of things and just being aware of it. Um, I think it was Mark Twain said there are lies, damn lies and statistics. And I don't want to argue with him. Yeah. Just because it's available, like be careful how you use it. It's uh, yeah. And it's, but it kind of, because that's a tectonic trend, right? It's, 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 we're going to get more and more data available to us on everything that we do. The more we live in digital space, the, the more we're going to create data. Sure. Or, or think about chat GPT. So let's say you hire me as a writer and I churn out 50 articles. I could do that in chat GPT in probably 50 minutes. But are those good articles? Are they accurate articles? Are they provocative? Are they insightful? Um, so, you know, again, just it's important for us to develop a healthy skepticism about analytics because, again, I'm not a big baseball fan, but it made baseball so unwatchable, Richard, that this year they finally changed the rules to minimize some of the analytics-driven decisions that were making the game so difficult for fans to enjoy. Oh, interesting. So just, just as a non-baseball watcher, I'm intrigued by that. So what, how, how did it change play? How did it? Well, first of all, um, managers started shifting infielders and outfielders because baseball players typically pull the ball. Um, and they would also make frequent pitching changes um, they would take a long time in the box. And I think the average American baseball game last year was three hours and 17 minutes. And this year, because of some significant rule changes, um, I think the games are down to about two hours and 37 minutes. Plus there's more action because um, you have in the past, what would have been a double or a single taken away because someone was standing in between um, the pitcher and second base or whatever. And now that's that you can't shift the players there. And to be fair, you know, basketball, which is a sport that I enjoy watching, is completely different than it used to be 20 years ago because three-point shots are worth more than two-point shots. Shh, don't tell anyone. So the teams play in a very monochromatic way. And analytically, it's the right move. But I can see how fans don't enjoy watching 75 three-point shots missed over the course of a 48-minute game. So a lot of sports, hockey, soccer, or football, from what I understand, have also embraced analytics. And again, it may be the right move um, for the purposes of winning a game, but does the sport suffer because fans say this sucks? I, I don't want to watch a bunch of guys strike out. I'd like to see the ball get put in play once in a while. So it's almost is it, is it a sort of a, a risk of, of corruption of your of your mission, of, of your purpose, what you're, you know, what you're here to do through an obsession with the data, which may have the intent of creating a more entertaining game or making you a more successful team, but be careful right. what you wish for. I mean, for. if one team does it, it's quirky, right? When the Oakland A's did some of this stuff, people said, what, what, are, you, what are you doing? I mean, if you've seen Moneyball, I read the book. It's one of my favorite books. I've read it twice. Um, it was kind of strange, but they were writing, it's a copycat world, so people copy. And 
So this gets back to really how I wrap up the book. If, if the goal is just to achieve some short-term goal, that's one thing or the objective, but there's a bigger question to ask. And hopefully I, I did a good job towards the end. And we see this with companies redefining themselves as B Corporation. Kickstarter is just one of them. Yes, we want to make money, but that's not the only thing we want to do. A couple of years ago, the business roundtable um, said flat out, we no longer believe that you should only try to maximize profits and shareholder value. You need to think yeah. about stakeholders, whether they're employees, society, labor unions, customers, whatever. So, you know, hopefully it's an optimistic book. These forces are taking place. And again, I, I am very much a capitalist, but if it's just about maximizing short term profits, then I just think it's, as they say, you're tripping over a uh, dime to get to a nickel. Um, there right. is, I think, um, in responsibility or at least an opportunity, Richard, for leaders to look at these trends and say, how can we build um, a more sustainable, employee-friendly workplace? Um, it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy and people are going to make mistakes, but there's, I think, too much going on to just assume that people will dutifully report every Monday at 9 a.m., leave at 5, and be loyal. Um, that just That's not happening anymore. So the question becomes, what can leaders do with this information? And, and hopefully I kind of sum up the book in a way that gets them to think about some of the options available to them. But returning to pre-COVID times, um, I, I, you know, I just don't see that how that's an option. And even if you could pull it off, do you want to? Do you want your employees resenting you because they have nowhere else to go? And your rock stars, you know this from coaching, they're going to have no shortage of opportunities. So will you get kind of an Apple scenario that Steve Jobs dreaded? You no longer have A folks, you've got B folks, B folks hire C folks, eventually the B folks leave. And before you know it, your business is on kind of um, thin ice. Yeah, 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 yeah. And what really emerges for me is you, just as we, we talked through that was, you know, a, a need for leaders to, ref, to reflect, to, to think critically, to use their discernment, to, to use those human faculties, to look across the whole piece and see the bigger picture um, and not get too too sucked into all of the opportunities that these these technologies are going to provide. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I like to think that I write the book that makes people think. I I wouldn't want someone to pick up one of my books and I'd rather someone disliked it, but I made them think rather than just, yeah, yeah, I already know all this. Um yeah. so yeah, I'd say, you know, it's I my favorite books and movies and TV shows are ones that I have to watch or read or, or albums listen to a bunch of times because there's something underneath the surface there. And I I don't want to write the kind of book that people can just get a summary of in three minutes from chat GPT and get the yeah. full impact of it. So yeah. yeah, hopefully I've achieved that. But there was a there was a lot to unpack. And I'm the you know, so far the response has been pretty positive. I was a little concerned right before I went to print on whether or not the chapter on fractions was really up to snuff. But so far, people have told me that was the most interesting one because I never really knew about it and I never really thought about it. So I, I feel good about my choices. I'm sure that some people will disagree, but you know, reasonable people can. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just to, just to, as we close out here, you alluded to some of the options, but is there a way to, to to summarize that in terms of what what you see as the sort of the broad choices that people are going to have? Yeah, uh, at the top forward? of my head, there are six. I'm sure that I'll get one of them wrong. But first, you can ignore them. All right, good mm -hmm. luck with that. Second, you could acknowledge them, but try to revert to pre-COVID times. <laughs> Elon Musk at Twitter. I don't think it's going to be successful. 
Um, you can wait and see how they play out. That, that's certainly an option. You could, um, as I'll say, tap out. So let's say you've made your money. You you can sell your business. You don't understand all this stuff. You think work needs to take place in an office. Let me just sell my business or retire or get a side hustle or whatever. You can certainly do that. You can scale back. Uh, some companies have done that. All right. So maybe we will kind of keep things closer to home. So we'll um, maybe minimize some of the other challenges involved, or you can embrace them or I say, hey, steer into the skid. And if your goal is to grow your company and potentially thrive, then you can really take a look at, say, manual processes and see how you can automate them. You can take a look at your rules around who needs to be in the office and try to find a policy that makes sense and look at that policy in the future to see if it does. You can take a look at generative AI tools and say, all right, we don't maybe want to use them for everything, but what things can we do that really do justify the um, the investment or the time spent? So I'm a big fan of the last one, but it's certainly not the only option. And to me, if you're um, if you're 63 years old and going to retire in a couple of years, you may not want to deal with all this. But a lot of people aren't in that position, so hopefully the book makes them think long and hard about what they're doing and why. And if I could help them, then hopefully I'll get some speaking consulting gigs out of it. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, that's a fantastic way to close. Thank you, Phil. Um, yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed us surfing, surfing these, these trends in this conversation. Um, I hope it's been useful to, for our listeners uh, to get some clarity on some of uh, what's going on out there. Uh, and yeah, and, and the options you just shared at the end there to, to have people think. Yeah, Richard, thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it. Um, so for people who want to get the book, well, it's called, again, it's called The Nine. We'll put, we'll put links uh, in the description, uh, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. And your website, if you could just, just spell it out for people who, who yep. are interested in. Yep. PhilSimon.com, easy peasy. Easy peasy, PhilSimon.com uh, for people who would like to hear more of Phil in their organization. <laughs> Uh, then uh, that's the place to find it. Okay, well, thanks once again, Phil. This has been awesome. Thank you for your time. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.